I remember being bullied when I was in grade school, and I hated that feeling. And so this idea of being able to stand with somebody or stand up with, with somebody to help them fight against bullying in their lives, whether that yes. was you know, an individual or an institution, for me, that was always a promise. And so to see that that promise wasn't realized for people was what drove me from practice and back to, to grad school, where my research has been on trying to think of ways to improve access to justice meaningfully. That means sort of systemic change, and, you know, it's still very much a work in progress. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week we've got conversation with Andrew Pillier, who is the new uh, Director of NSRLP West, which is a really exciting initiative that we've been focusing on quite a bit over the last year or so and we're really excited about it. So NSRLP West is the first of what we hope will be multiple NSRLP chapters across the country. So this first one is focusing on, uh, especially for right now, on British Columbia. They will hopefully in the coming months and years be expanding a little bit to cover uh, the West in general. But the whole idea with these NSRLP chapters is that we will establish kind of little footholds across mm. the country where we'll get people working on some regional issues around self-representation and also help with some of our national projects that are happening. So we're finding NSRLP West is a great start. It launched uh, this fall, this past fall, um, out in Kamloops, which is where Andrew is based. And this all began um, back in the fall of 2018 when Andrew attended our a national dialogue event, and we started to talk about the idea of establishing um, a chapter out west. Uh, Andrew is an assistant professor of law at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. He moved from legal practice, where he practiced in a smaller firm and clerked at the BC Court of Appeal, um, moved into academia because he wanted to find a way to work toward change and improvement, specifically in access to justice. Dana and Moyer and I are thrilled to have Andrew, Andrew as a new colleague. Uh, we have been hoping for a while to find somebody with the necessary level of passion and energy and uh, maybe a little bit of chutzpah yes. who would be willing to take this on on a regional basis and we're just delighted to have Andrew working with us and he has now joined the NSRLP advisory board um, so we're hoping we've hooked him in for the long term. Yeah. <laughs> this conversation is going to begin with me just talking to him about his move out of practice and into teaching and, and what motivates him. And then we're going to move on to talk about his hopes and his plans for NSRLP West. Hello, Andrew. It's Julie calling. How are you? Hi, Julie. I'm good. How are you? Good. This is the end of a very busy week for you. That's right. This is uh, the Friday of Access to Justice Week. This is the second one that we've had out here. And it's been a whirlwind. It's been a very full week. All of the uh, law schools out here have uh, been participating. And That's great. We just had the Attorney General here to talk about it, and it was a really, really good week. Wonderful. And hopefully it's a great way of really 
alerting students in our law schools to some of the issues, the crisis around access in the legal system and really giving them a sense of, uh, of the work that there is to be done out there. Yeah, and hopefully some hope that they may be able to do some of that good work themselves. Well, I hope so too. So, Andrew, I want to use this podcast to introduce you to the Jumping Off the Ivory Tower audience as new director of the brand new NSRLP West partner uh, at the Thompson Rivers University in Cambridge. Thank you. And we are absolutely delighted, of course, to have our first outside of Ontario partner in the National Self-Represented Litigant Project. We've been hoping for a while now to start to set up some parts of the other parts of the country to work with law students on this issue and also work with the local community. And so we're thrilled that you're going to be leading this initiative out at NSRLP West. Uh, and we'll talk a bit more about, I hope, some of the plans for that because I should also um, make it clear to anyone who's listening in British Columbia or for that matter in uh, in Alberta that this is very early days. Andrew's just getting his feet under the table. He's just about to uh, hire a professional staff member and uh, and start to recruit law students. So we'll talk a bit more about that in a few minutes, I hope. I want to talk first about you and to Uh-oh. introduce, yes, I know, and introduce you a little bit to this audience because I think that you realize that I thought very, very hard about somebody who I felt would have the credibility, the experience, the expertise, and can I also say the courage to be the public face of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project in the West. And you were my pick, Andrew, my one and only pick. So I'd love it if you could say a little bit more about yourself and your particular aspirations and goals as a law professor. And, you know, in particular, I think people would be interested in the fact that you clerked at the BC Supreme Court, spent some time in legal practice, but then you became a law professor. And that's not really a particularly conventional route, especially not for someone like yourself who says that their goals and their aspirations are about expanding access to justice. So could you could you say a bit more about that? Sure. And by the way, I guess that's no pressure on me, huh? Oh none of those live up no. to those things that you've just <laughs> those nice things you've said. I'm originally from Toronto. I moved out west uh, after law school and I clerked at the British Columbia Supreme Court and did saw trial work that way. And then I worked at a small civil litigation firm for a year and then went to a very large national law firm for a few years where I did sort of a, a general litigation practice. I liked that work, I have to tell you, maybe more than I thought I would in law school. But, you know, a piece that really just seemed missing to me was the access to justice piece. And what that meant for me at the time was that I really believed in doing as much pro bono work as I could do as I was still trying to understand what the practice of law was like. And I just remember being astounded by the number of folks who I deal with who had legal problems and couldn't afford lawyers or uh, had trouble with the system. And the troubling thing was I didn't see any answers coming down the pipe. So I didn't see any answers Mm. that seemed like meaningful answers or meaningful changes or really enough people focusing on the issue. There was a lot of talk about access to justice problems, but that seemed to be, you know, mile high rather than, than on the ground. Now, 
this was personal for me in this sense. I am the first person in my family who's been legally trained. I did a, a TEDx talk a few years ago, and I told this story there, but it's, it's yes, a story I really that I keep coming back to. I, the hook to become a lawyer got planted in my, in my cheek when I was in grade school. And yes. I went through a, a mock trial, and I loved it. And I loved that feeling of being able to stand up for justice. And in part, I think uh, here's something that wasn't part of it, that TED Talk. Um, I, I remember being bullied when I was in grade school, and I hated that feeling. And so this idea of being able to stand with somebody or stand up with, with somebody to help them fight against bullying in their lives, whether that yes. was you know, an individual or an institution, for me, that was always a promise. And so to see that that promise wasn't realized for people was what drove me from practice and back to, to grad school, where my research has been on trying to think of ways to improve access to justice meaningfully. That means sort of systemic change, and you know, it's still very much a work in progress. I want to talk to you a little bit more about your research on, on pro bono work, Andrew. But yes. before that, what is it you see yourself as being able to do in the classroom on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis in law schools, which are, to a certain extent, still reproducing people from the same socioeconomic classes, the same races, to be lawyers in this system. What is it that you feel you can contribute in a law school context to access to justice? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, this has just been very topical with Access to Justice Week having just passed. And, you know, when I went to law school, there was certainly talk about access to justice as a problem, but it was something that was very peripheral to anything that mm. we addressed in law school in a in a meaningful way. I don't recall most of my classes addressing access to justice other than maybe the throwaway line that, you know, oh, most people would never be able to afford this type of service. And that was it. Right. I think that is an oversight. I think that's a mistake. And I think that to take the legal problems that people actually face and bring those closer to the core of what legal education is, is what we need to be doing. And, you know, are we going to get there in one step? No. Is there real concern about reproducing the system as it has been before? Yes. On the other hand, you know, I was speaking with some some students earlier today about how there has been pushback in the past from uh, members of the profession across this country and, and in other places when it comes to allowing new ways of practicing or new service providers to enter to try and yes. address legal services. And sometimes this pushback hasn't been led by evidence. It's been led by, even when there's been government or law society openness to this, the profession has been the one pushing back. And right. my hope is that by bringing access to justice issues up in a meaningful way at the beginning of a future lawyer's career, that maybe some of that fear and some of that pushback defensiveness, will go away. Yes. The defensiveness yes. will go away. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think, and I feel the same way in my own classrooms, I think that we have the opportunity to educate a new generation of lawyers who don't make all these assumptions about having to, you know, desperately hold on to their turf, but can collaborate with other kinds of service providers to try to do something about what you say is is absolutely more than a mile high abstract problem now in terms of access to legal services. It's, It's a real on the ground problem. Now, One of the things, of course, that has been often mooted as in some quarters as a complete solution, which I'm extremely skeptical about, or at least some kind of a solution, which I'm a little more open to, is that lawyers should contribute pro bono time. In other words, time when they're not actually going to get paid 
to giving services to people who can't otherwise afford them, just as you mentioned that you did when you were in practice yourself. Now, I know you've done some research on this, Andrew, and in particular, I'm interested in what you can tell us about how, from those interviews, you learned that it's possible to incentivize, to encourage lawyers to do pro bono work. Mm. Well, and... You know, it's interesting. Uh, it was a few years ago now that um, I did some some interviews with lawyers around British Columbia to understand uh, what types of pro bono work uh, do they do. And I should mention in passing mm. that this was work that I did uh, with a colleague, Anna Lund, who's now at um, the law school at the University of uh, Alberta. But this is what was apparent to me from that is that there was a really wide range of what people did when it came to pro bono work. Some of that was work that was you know, what you and I might think of as obviously improving access to justice, and sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was work that was unpaid work for an existing client in order to retain that client. It mm-hmm. was also clear to me that we don't have a terrific sense of how much pro bono work lawyers actually do, and in part that's right. because our definition of pro bono isn't um, always clearly set out. But, you know, in British Columbia, certainly at the time, um, lawyers are required to report file an annual practice declaration. And one of the questions on that annual practice declaration asks about the amount of pro bono work that a lawyer has done. But it's not clear that all lawyers, first of all, understand pro bono in the same way or that they take as much time or care in filling out that aspect of their practice declaration. So, Or that it means anything particularly, because anything. one of the things that the BC Law Society, of course, and, and some of the listeners might remember, we actually covered this quite a bit at the end of last year uh, in our blogs. There was a whole debate in the BC Law Society over how whether or not pro bono should be mandatory. In other words, whether or not the Law Society should require people to do a certain amount of pro bono work. And, of course, that, and, that failed, that argument failed. And that's, that's, that's a long-standing argument, right? Yes. And that's an argument that, you know, I've heard even students this week questioning, you know, is that, is that an answer to, to this problem? The question comes up, I go back to some of the work that Jillian Hadfield has done yeah. and what she's spoken about, how even if lawyers were to engage almost exclusively in pro bono work, our best guess about the scope of need in our communities is uh, still far outstrips um, exactly. the amount of yeah. legal work that was due. I think, you know, the, the danger with focusing too much on pro bono is that it can, you know, take uh, the focus away from the need for systemic change. We don't ask do- doctors to provide services for free as a uh, uh, an alternative to universal medical coverage, right? right? And I think the same should perhaps be the case for um, legal services. So, you know, how do we incentivize pro bono work? I mean, I, I still look at my own experience. Um, and pro bono work is important in getting me to where I am right now. But so there is certainly value in doing that. And I think that incentive, you know, maybe has to be centralized in a way. What I mean is this. It appears that a number of larger law firms are better able to support law students and young lawyers in doing pro bono work because they have the financial support to do that. Well, what about lawyers in communities who are willing to write off um, their time or to undercharge so that they can take care of people they know in their community? Should they be just left to deal with that? Or should there be some type of of subsidy available to allow them to do more pro bono and low right. bono work. And to me, that type of incentivization program 
actually just leads us back into the bigger question of what is the type of um, structural systemic reform that we might want mm -hmm. in order to better address access to pro justice problems more generally. And, and it sort of sounds from what you're saying, Andrew, that you would see pro bono work as being a good place for younger lawyers to get experience and in your case indeed to, to see the extent of the problem out there with the unaffordability of legal services, but not but obviously not a solution as as Gillian Hadfield and others have said, it's it's not going to be a solution. And I think that, you know, the other thing that's really, really important for me to just mention here as a shout out is that at the NSRLP we have now had pro bono legal assistance in three intervention cases. I'm not sure whether people necessarily understand that when the National Self-Represented Litigants Project goes to court as an intervener on a self-represented litigant issue, on a systemic issue, in each of those cases, we have had um, pro bono, you know, un free legal services from larger law firms, and in one case, um, an individual practitioner. And obviously, we're very grateful for that, but it's not, as you have said, a systemic answer to the problem of access to representation. Yeah. Let's go then on and talk a bit more about NSRLP West. Uh, West. Yes. Regional partnership, a local, let's call it chapter. We're still coming up with the right language here, aren't we? <laughs> but, you know, we feel very excited about the fact that we now have you guys out there um, in British Columbia who can collaborate with us on our mandate, research, resources, and advocacy three-part mandate. And, you know, we have some really big projects which um, we're hoping that we can uh, work together on. And, of course, we're also expecting you to have your own local projects. So I know this is a game, very early days. We were there for the launch um, in the middle of last month. But could you say a little bit uh, for the podcast listeners about some of the developments to date and your future plans. Sure, happy to. And and likewise, uh, just thrilled to be able to open this chapter out here and yeah. to be able to bring all the work that NSRLP has done um, and to, to land it in British Columbia and uh, in Kamloops the way that we're doing. So we are starting off uh, and, you know, if you've ever started something, it can be um, <laughs> sometimes uh, a lot of work to get things up to a point where you Indeed. can start doing the things you want to do. But look, we've had terrific support already from the university, from NSRLP, um, from a number of the students in the community here. So, uh, and of course, from the Law Foundation of British Columbia and yes. the Law Society. She, big thank you to, to them to for, for their support. Yeah. Yep. So, so far, where we're at is this. We have, I have uh, hired a research assistant. We have a couple of other students volunteers through Pro Bono Students Canada. And we're engaging in some, some starting research projects, one of which is trying to track and understand how McKenzie Friends or court people are used and allowed in courts around British Columbia. Um, yeah. uh, one of the things we had, in addition to the Attorney General, David Eby, speaking at the um, Access to Justice Week conclusion today. We also had BC's uh, Provincial Court uh, Chief Justice Melissa Gillespie speak as well. One of the things that I think is fantastic about what's happening in BC is I think there is an openness, um, and both the Attorney General and the Chief Judge spoken about this, there is an openness to collaborating among institutions to try and figure out yeah. solutions that work for access to justice. And this is something, yeah. you know, hasn't always been the case, certainly, 
has has not been the case in a number of other jurisdictions in the past, but right now, at this moment in time, we seem to be in a very good place for this. So uh, some of the research we're doing is trying to um, see how well um, these good intentions and these collaborations, how well are they playing out on the ground and what right. uh, what do they mean in real terms for the people who are um, self-representing in court or, or seeking justice. So that's one of the things we're starting out with. I, I should say this as well. We're hoping to hire a, as you mentioned, a full-time project coordinator in the coming weeks. And eventually, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, our hope and expectation is that although we are physically located in Kamloops, British Columbia. The name NSRLP West is intended to uh, extend our reach throughout Western Canada. So British Columbia, Alberta, um, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Northwest Territories, Yukon, Nunavut. I mean, this is the scope of what we're trying to do is to uh, be a place where we can focus specifically on issues that may have more prominence in the Western part of the country, country than in points East. So, you know, where that may go is certainly an open question, but I'd, I'd encourage anybody who's listening who uh, is in British Columbia or Alberta or Saskatchewan or Manitoba or the territories to get in touch and to, you know, if 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 we're, we're going to start sort of to build out from Kamloops, so it may be that we're not in a position to work with you immediately, but if there's a point in the medium future to do so, that's that's where I hope we're going. And that that invitation, of course, is extended to people working in the legal system, but also to self-represented litigants themselves. And, uh, you know, we we, we really, as you put it so well, Andrew, we want this to be a a chapter that can really reflect the particular issues, the particular particular interests and the particular challenges of your community. We've been out now to Kamloops a couple of times to work with you. And uh, Dana and Moya came out as well for the launch event in October. and I must say we had a great time. And I think we all feel that Kamloops is an especially interesting place to have this first piece of NSROP West located. Um, And I wonder whether you could just tell people a little bit about uh, Kamloops in particular uh, and and what I would call the BC access justice community in general which I agree with you I think is especially open-minded and and very practical in terms of its collaboration it feels like a very good fit for NSRLP and quite a special place so as somebody yeah. who lives there can you say a little bit more about that I will happily do that. And I'm going to start in this way. I've been living here in Kamloops for just over two and a half years now. So as a beginning, I want to acknowledge that this is the traditional and unceded territory of the Kamloops to Shwepmek within Shwepmek-Ulu. And what I've just said is that this land, as it is through much of this province, um, has never been subject to treaty. It is yeah. unceded land of the Shuetmik people. And so for any listeners outside of British Columbia, this is something that you may not be aware of, but there are relatively few treaties in this province, which means this yeah. land and acknowledging the territory we're on has a particular meaning here yes. because that legal title, that legal rights to this land has never been ceded. And so uninvited visitor on this land um, it's been really neat um, learning about this community that is uh, that we know as Kamloops. Kamloops is a place that I think people sometimes throughout BC may have passed through, 
maybe not spent much time in, but if you do, it's a wonderful place with um, all sorts of particularly outdoor activities nearby. This is a community that has for a long time had an industrial um, and extractive industry base. It also mm. has more recently a, a lot of work in developing in tourism with um, uh, a number of different sun peaks, for example, ski resorts is just outside of town. There are a number of different factors going on. And so in a way, this city is trying to decide where its future lies. Part of that mm-hmm. also is the university has, in recent years, in a large international student body. So this is a place that is quite dynamic and maybe more dynamic than, uh, than you might think. As a result, there are opportunities to interact with Indigenous people living on reserve and also living within town. It's a place that has all sorts of different, frankly, justice needs. It's yeah. a place that has some significant wealth and significant poverty. Because of all of this, Kamloops as a place has a whole widespread of people and and justice needs that that I think makes this a really um, important place uh, to locate something like NSRLP West. There are, in addition to the support from the chief judge and the attorney general in terms of trying to improve access to justice in British Columbia, the chief justice of uh, British Columbia, Robert Bowman, has been a longtime supporter of uh, access to justice efforts, and the BC courts have been, I'd say, quite responsive compared to many yes. others in terms of trying to improve access to justice. So, And I think that makes it a wonderful place to be building out NSRLP West from because it reflects all of those challenges that we know are there and are only growing about people getting access to the justice system and access to some kind of way of resolving their conflict. So, Andrew, we're thrilled about this, and we're going to keep um, our listeners updated in terms of news and developments from Kamloops. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your invitation to people to get in touch, and I'll make sure that there is uh, contact information on on the podcast website. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Julie. Take care. My name is Sarah Ewart and I'm a second year student at Thompson Rivers University Faculty of Law. I'm also a research assistant for the National Self-Represented Litigant Project's um, new Western branch. And I feel really lucky that I get to be working on the project and I'm really excited to see where it goes and how it grows in BC. So as a, a newer law school, I think it's been important for TRU Law to find its niche, its thing and, and make its mark. Um, Early on at the, at the school, Professor Katie Sykes brought in a class uh, called Apps for Justice, and it was unlike any class at any other law school in Canada. It's still going on. Uh, the class teaches students to build legal apps geared towards uh, automating legal expertise and alleviating inefficiencies in the legal system in legal practice and uses uh, plain language and user-first design principles to do this. This class has gotten some attention in the media and around law schools and the legal technology world. Um, But the class has also done a great job in teaching students about the importance of making justice accessible for users of the justice system. 
Um, at the school, we also have a legal clinic as well as other professors that are really amazing, like Andrew Pillier, uh, and he runs the uh, Access to Justice Week every fall. And his academic focus long before uh, coming to TRU was Access to Justice. So because of TRU's focus on access to justice, it was really exciting for us to find out that we would be starting the Western branch of NSRLP. Uh, I find, and I, I don't think this is an uncommon feeling uh, for law students, that uh, law school can make you forget sometimes why you came to law school, because there's a lot of focus on getting good grades and finding a job and eventually making good money, making partner, that sort of thing. Uh, we don't really learn a lot about jobs in social justice fields, and it can be really frustrating to feel that despite wanting to help, we won't be able to do much more uh, once we're working 70 hours a week and trying to climb to the top. NSRLP West uh, will give students at TRU uh, opportunities to get practical experience helping, helping the community uh, while they navigate the complicated and restrictive legal system. And the work that NSRLP West has done and will do in the future will also help educate students on what the needs of self-represented litigants in BC actually are because the project engages with self-reps instead of making assessments from the outside. Over time, I think access to justice quietly became TRU Law's niche, our thing, uh, but having NSRLP West at the school has really solidified this in an obvious way, and I, I hope we'll continue to grow this as, as our thing. Personally, being involved in the project has given me a lot of hope for my future in law because change is a really slow process, especially in the legal system. But having this project expand and hearing from people that have been helped by NSRLP really shows me that there are viable ways to make the slow change more bearable for justice system users and through really hard work, ways to encourage the change to happen faster. My name is Linda Heidemacher and I live in Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm a registered massage therapist as well as a registered therapeutic counsellor. I have been both a represented and a self-represented litigant in the provincial family court system over the past 19 years. During this time, I had to endure three trials and five hearings, totaling 22 days many family case conferences, and too many court appearances to count. The main focus of my case was access and child support. Like so many people in my situation, I put my trust in the court for a resolution that was in the best interest of our son. Well, here I am 19 years later, still struggling with a family court system to do what I thought it was there to do. Like many others, I have become disillusioned by our broken system, and sadly, my story is not unique. There are thousands of self-represented litigants across Canada, and it is not getting any better. As Julie McFarland's 2013 study has revealed, we are self-represented because we have to be for financial reasons, not because we want to. Representing myself has been traumatizing. I would not wish it on anyone. I heard about Julie and the National Self-Represented Litigants Project on a CBC segment a number of years ago. I immediately went to the website, read as much as I could, and listened to the interviews of other self-represented litigants. 
I could identify with each and every interview. It was like they were speaking my language. At first, I felt comforted by what I read and heard in that I felt less alone and isolated. Then I felt angry, as there are so many of us across the nation struggling within a system that we believed would be a just system, one that would work for us. What I have learned over the years is that we have an unfriendly legal system and not a justice system. The National Self-Represented Litigant Project has been very useful and supportive for me over the years, including attending a peer support group. The website holds a wealth of information, such as research articles and useful resources. The blog articles and the podcast episodes of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower keeps me updated and informed of legal topics and the experiences of other SRLs. Attending the National Conference had a huge impact on me because it was here that I learned about the many people, judges, lawyers, and stakeholders aware of our broken system and advocating for change. I had the opportunity to stand on even ground as a user of the system with the professionals working in the system to communicate and collaborate with them. Here, my voice was not only listened to, it was heard. This has given me hope for change. I was thrilled to learn that there is an NSRLP chapter now in the West, based at Thompson Rivers University. I believe this will help to decrease the barrier between Eastern and Western Canada and provide advocacy for SRLs here in the West. I am hoping that the programs that have been successful in the East can be implemented in the West. Programs I would like to see happening soon include the pairing of self-represented litigants with law and or paralegal students, more SRL support groups, a McKenzie Friend program, education and awareness programs for the general public, lawyers, judges, court staff, and stakeholders on the importance of a trauma-informed and user-friendly approach to our legal system. I would highly recommend anyone going through a legal battle visit and use the resources of the National Self-Represented Litigant Project website. It made a massive difference for me. I thank Julie McFarlane, Andrew Pillier at NSRLP West, and all of the staff behind the scenes for making it available in the East and now in the West. Hi, my name is Jared Heidemacke, and I live in Vancouver. I'm currently a college student with hopes of going to law school. My parents separated before I was born, and by the time I was 13 years old, they had already been through seven family court hearings. I was not consciously aware of the impact of the high conflict going on around me as a young child, but I did become much more aware of it as I got older. The court ordered that I had to alternate every other weekend between my parents' homes, and I was torn between two drastically different lifestyles with different rules and expectations, and this didn't work out for me. My life wasn't my own. I couldn't plan to do normal things, like play on sports teams, attend birthday parties, or simply go out with friends. I missed out on a lot of my childhood, and it, again, wasn't working out for me. By the time I was in high school, I started making decisions for myself. At the age of 15, I was interviewed by a judge. The judge was receptive and listened to me. However, in the end of yet another trial, the interview amounted to nothing. My voice was not heard. I was shocked, angry, and frustrated that I was forced into an emotionally unhealthy situation. And as a result of this, I lost faith in our court system. 
This had a huge impact on me. I experienced a great deal of daily anxiety and again felt as if my life was not my own. It would probably take hours for me to talk about the impact of being unheard. Now at the age of 20, I finally feel as if my voice is being heard. For the past year and a half, I have been active in the Youth Leadership Group, part of the BC Family Innovations Lab Youth Voices Initiative. We are in the process of developing a multimedia platform where young people can share their stories. Our hope is that the platform will provide peer-to-peer -peer support and educate anyone within the legal system who works with families, parents, teachers, lawyers, and even judges. Now, Our ultimate goal is to create change and have our voices heard. I'm also part of the consulting team for the redesigning of the Parenting After Separation course, a course mandatory in 17 BC jurisdictions. We want Youth Voices to be part of the course, to educate parents and those within the legal system. The Society for Children and Youth of BC is working to bring awareness into the court system about the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Our mission to educate the public, lawyers, judges, and everyone else who works with the separating families is a great fit with the goals of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. I hope the NSRLP West and Youth Voices can work together to improve the system. In Other News Welcome back to the In Other News segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. Here are some important updates that have happened since our last episode. Our first story is about COVID-19. First and foremost, we encourage all of our listeners to stay safe, wash their hands, and self-isolate or self-quarantine as appropriate. The coronavirus has been having all sorts of impacts, from professional sports to schools to workplaces. Courts and other legal institutions have also taken measures to prevent the spread. The news is changing constantly, and at the time of recording this segment, the Ontario Superior Court of Justice has suspended upcoming jury trials across the province due to the COVID-19 pandemic, while Saskatchewan is in the process of creating a unified approach. I haven't seen news stories for other provinces, and encourage our listeners to reach out with any updates. I would note that the United Kingdom Ministry of Justice announced that courts will remain open as normal. In the past, the NSRLP has been critical of the impact of delays on the justice system, but I think this is a complex set of circumstances and we might need to envision new ideas of what the justice system looks like during these circumstances and beyond. On a related note, the NSRLP's Lawyers in the Library session are postponed for now. The first evening was a big success and we will certainly hope to reschedule later on. Similarly, Julie was expected to speak on Wednesday, March 18th at the Legal Innovation Zones Conference on Modernizing Legal Regulation. This conference has been postponed, and we will update you when we have more details. Next up, a report was released on Tuesday, March 10th that was co-authored by five law professors from three Ontario universities and is endorsed by another 25 law professors from across Ontario. Authors include Windsor's own Professor Gillian Rogan and Professor Gemma Smith. The 12-page report looks at the proposed changes to legal aid in Ontario and examines the impacts on legal clinics and low-income individuals. This report is titled, Neither Smarter Nor Stronger. Bill 161 is a step backwards for access to justice and community-based legal services in Ontario. For reference, Bill 161 was an omnibus justice bill titled, The Smarter and Stronger Justice Act. We've linked to an article about the report and the report itself. We encourage all of our listeners to take a look, even if you might be residing outside of Ontario. Lastly, here's some NSRLP pieces worth reading that you might have missed. First, we published a blog post in our recurring series of SRL Lawyer Dialogues between Rob Harvey and Randy Drusen. 
This time, they examined the question, what do SRLs want? Or rather, what did Randy want as an SRL that the legal system didn't give her? And how could the system respond better to the needs of her or other SRLs? There are a ton of interesting insights in this single piece. Second and third are pieces available on Canly Connects. The first of these is by research assistant Kayla Scarrow and examines the case law in Ontario and Alberta with regard to awarding costs to SRLs. This case comment even includes a handy section titled, What Does This Case Mean for SRLs? and is both interesting and useful. The final piece is by research assistant Rebecca Flynn, where she wonderfully summarizes the Kawartha Halliburton Children's Aid Society case from last year that the NSRLP had intervened on. The case was interesting for a lot of reasons, and the summary specifically examines the impact of this decision on summary judgments against SRLs in child protection matters, though it does have implications beyond that as well. Definitely catch up on all three of these pieces at some point. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation on access to justice.